Uh, please do open your Bibles to Psalms. Psalm 48 uh, will be our text this morning. And as you're turning there, be reminded that this is the Word of God, the inspired, breathed out Word of God. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that by your spirit you would come and speak to us through it. Lord, please take away any distraction, wherever that might come from. If it comes from me or from things around us, from our circumstances or situations, take it away, Lord, and help us to see you more clearly. Help us to worship you as we should. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 48 belongs to a collection of psalms uh, that is known as the Psalms of the Sons of Korah. We don't know precisely when it was written or even who exactly wrote this psalm. You see in verse 9, there's mention of the temple as, a, as opposed to the tabernacle. So that would seem at least to put the date no earlier than sometime after 
the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem during the reign of King Solomon. So no earlier than approximately 957 BC. But it's likely that it was sometime after that because verses 4 through 7 reference a battle that doesn't seem to match up with the early history of the kingdom of Israel. The title there at the top of the psalm, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, tells us that it was written by one of the descendants of Korah. But who was Korah? Well, we're introduced to him in Numbers chapter 16, and we discover that he comes from the line of Levi, that tribe that was set aside for service in the tabernacle and in the temple. And by the time of the reign of King David, the descendants of Korah had been entrusted with leading the people of Israel in song as they gathered to worship in and around the tabernacle. First Chronicles chapter 6 tells us that they continued serving this way after the temple had been built during the reign of Solomon. But back in Numbers 16, we discover that Korah's family didn't have a very good beginning. In fact, we discover that the head of the family, Korah himself, was actually a proud, hard-hearted rebel. Listen to what it says in, in verses 1 through 4 of Numbers 16. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for in the congregation all are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. So Korah leads this group of 250 men in rebellion against Moses, against Aaron, but ultimately against God himself, against the order that God had established. And Korah and the other rebels are judged by God, they meet an untimely end. The ground literally swallows them up in a huge earthquake. Verses 31 to 33, we read this, and as soon as he, that's Moses, had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. It's not how you might imagine a family of worship leaders would begin. But there is grace here, because we read later in Numbers chapter 26 that the children of Korah did not die. They were spared. And then perhaps even more graciously, over the 
years and generations to come, God gives, gives this family musical ability and raises them up to be leaders of worship in the temple. But I think you can sense in all of the Psalms of the sons of Korah this remembrance, this awareness of their rebellious beginnings, of where they'd come from. These Psalms are particularly touched with an attitude of, of humility and, and gratitude to God. You get the feeling they, they could never get over the graciousness and goodness and kindness of their God. Just look back a few chapters to Psalm 46 and verse 2. You'll see a clear example of this. There the psalmist writes, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way. There might be more than just a little holy irony there. But here's the point. The sons of Korah remember what happened to their patriarch. But they're so moved by the graciousness and love of God that they declare they will not fear. They know experimentally, experientially, that God is merciful and gracious. He is their refuge, their strength, their very present help, in spite of their history. Psalm 48, then, is a song of praise. And along with the two previous psalms, it belongs to a group of Psalms that are sometimes called the Songs of Zion. They are great hymns of praise to God for his kingship and for his love for the city of Jerusalem. And this psalm in particular seems to mark the occasion of a wonderful deliverance by God in some ancient battle where Jerusalem is under siege by multiple kings. See in verse 4, the kings assembled, they came on together. But this is not what the psalm begins and ends with. The psalm begins and ends with God himself. Look at verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And then the final verse. This is our God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So this psalm is is about God above all. And so that we don't lose sight of him in the midst of all the blessings and, and deliverances that the psalmist retells. He bookends this psalm with instructions to praise him and to remember him. So let's briefly survey the text. As we noted, the, the psalm begins with a call to praise God for his greatness. God is great. So great that our praise of him ought to reflect that greatness. It should never run out. It should never run dry. And then the psalmist draws our attention to the beauty of Zion, the city of God in verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy mountain, his royal city, the joy of all the earth. We see God reveals himself there as a fortress, a refuge, a stronghold, 
verse 3. And then in verses 4 to 7, we see the victory that God gets over the enemies of Zion, the protection that he is for her. We're given a vivid picture of how God makes himself known as a mighty fortress. Then in verse 8, we're reminded again of the faithfulness of God throughout all generations. There's that beautiful expression, as we have heard, so we have seen. Reminding us that God's faithfulness in the past is vindicated in the present. And then in verse 9, God's steadfast love is remembered. His faithful, covenant-keeping, committed love. And notice where that remembrance takes place. It's in the temple, the place where sacrifices were made. That's where the psalmist says the people remember God's steadfast love. It is the great redemptive work of God in Christ Jesus pictured in those temple sacrifices that is the pinnacle the high point of God's steadfast love. And verse 10, we see the praise of God filling the whole earth. And why? Because God's hand, God's right hand is filled with righteousness. Everything he does demonstrates his righteousness. And then in verse 11, as a result, we see that Zion is glad Jerusalem and all the surrounding villages are rejoicing because of God's righteous judgments. Verses 12 and 13, we're instructed to look carefully at the work that God has done in Zion so that we're able to tell the next generation of his faithfulness, of his care, so that we might teach our children who God is and what he's like. And then in verse 14, the psalmist concludes by reminding us that this God is our God. The God who has made Zion beautiful and strong is a, is a personal God, is our God. He will not leave us. He will guide us forever. So then how does this psalm speak to us now? Verses 1 and 2 tell us that God's holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. The joy of all the earth. So the question then is, what is this mountain that the psalmist speaks of? What is meant by Zion and the city of our God? In verse 8 we read, the city of our God which God will establish forever. And there's a sense, isn't there, throughout the whole psalm that the writer is not just talking about the physical Jerusalem. He's not just talking about the mountain that Jerusalem and the temple were built on. We sense it, especially in verse 8, that he has something bigger in view. And we know, don't we, that the city of Jerusalem came under siege many times. It was destroyed and then came crashing down finally in A.D. 70. The psalmist is speaking, I think, prophetically about us, about Christ's church, that precious body of believers that Jesus himself purchased at the greatest cost. 
purchased with the blood of Christ himself. And the rest of the Bible is clear that the real Zion is more than just a physical place. The writer to the Hebrews picks up this imagery in chapter 12 when he says, speaking to the church, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then in Revelation 14, John sees the elect, the church of God, they're gathered on Mount Zion with their Savior, Jesus Christ. Zion is the church. But why is Zion then described as the joy of all the earth? Well, this is our big idea this morning. Zion is the joy of all the earth because God is in her midst and makes himself known as her fortress, her redeemer, and her guide. So let's take these reasons one at a time. Let's see God as our fortress, God as our redeemer, God as our guide. But before we dive into that, let's just pause for a little moment and take in the wonder, the wonder of God dwelling with us, with people like us, rebels, wretches who don't deserve his goodness. The wonder of him revealing himself to us, of his making himself known to us. Every single one of us has broken his law. Every single one of us has rebelled against his rule. And God would be perfectly just to cause the ground to swallow us up just like Korah. He didn't have to reveal himself to us. He didn't have to make himself known to us. And yet he did. He did. And he does. He chose to reveal himself through all that he has made, through his word, and through the word made flesh. Jesus himself. What a gracious God we serve. What a merciful God we worship this morning. So let's consider first God as our fortress, our strong tower, as the proverb has it. In verses 4 to 7, the psalmist pictures a battle. The kings are gathered in siege, ready for battle outside Jerusalem, but then something strange happens, something unusual, something out of the ordinary. These kings and their armies look at Jerusalem and they are put to panic. They flee. Trembling takes hold of them, anguish and pain, like the pain of a mother giving birth. And the battle is won, almost as it were, without a shot being fired. Jerusalem is saved. The specific battle that the psalmist is thinking about isn't clear. It could, it could be the, the scene that is recorded for us in Second Chronicles chapter 20. That chapter describes a great multitude of soldiers from Moab and Ammon and other places massing for an attack against Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat, the, the king at the time, leads 
the army of Judah out to the battlefield, but instead of giving instructions for battle, he appoints people to lead the army in songs of praise to God. What happens next is incredible. We pick up the story in verse 22. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. God makes himself known as a fortress, as their deliverer, their rescuer. Or perhaps it could have been that time under King Hezekiah when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, assembled an army of 185,000 soldiers to lay siege to Jerusalem. We read about that in chapters 18 and 19 of 2 Kings. Hezekiah prays to God for deliverance. And God sends Isaiah the prophet to bring a word of encouragement and rescue. And Isaiah says to the king, He, that is Sennacherib, shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake. And then the deliverance comes in verses 35 and 36 of chapter 19. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. But whatever the occasion the psalmist has in mind, or perhaps even occasions, the message is clear, isn't it? The victory belongs to God. He is our fortress and our refuge. Look at verse 5. It records the results of the enemy's plans. In the Hebrew there, it's, it's made up almost entirely of four verbs. Literally, it, it reads, they saw, they were astounded, they were overwhelmed, they fled in panic. It's almost the reverse mirror image, if you like, of what Julius Caesar famous said, I came, famously said, I came, I saw, I conquered. But with the enemies of Judah, it was they came, they were astounded, they fled. The magnitude of the devastation inflicted by God on their enemies is, is pictured there in verse 7. The ships of Tarshish were greatly feared in their day. They were um, the mightiest ships of all, feared by everyone they came against, like the, the British Navy used to be. Perhaps the U.S. Navy is now. Um, I don't know. <laughs> But nonetheless, God shatters these ships. 
destroys this navy, breaks them to splinters. And then we come to verse 8, that, that beautiful expression, as we have heard, so we have seen. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness from generation to generation. John Kelvin said in his commentary on this verse, God does not disappoint the hope which he produces in our minds by means of his word. It is not his way to be more liberal in promising than faithful in performing what he has promised. And that's so true, isn't it? In, in Christ, God has won the most decisive battle. The battle against our own sin, against even death itself. I'm reminded of those words of Paul in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. In Christ, our eternal debt is paid. Our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. It has been erased from our account. Because God in Christ defeated our sin, because he set us free from death, God has not and will not disappoint that hope that he produces in our minds. He has been super abundantly more liberal, more generous in performing what he has promised. We've heard the gospel truth that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again for us. And now we get to see that fruit in our own lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters. As we have heard, so we have seen. Think of that great promise that Jesus makes to his church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he has, hasn't he? Christ has built his church. Throughout all the ages since he first spoke that promise, Jesus has built his church. Nothing 
Nothing has prevailed against it, not even the gates of hell itself. Think how God raised up the Roman Empire and used it in the arrest and crucifixion of our Savior. He used it so that after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the gospel could spread throughout the world. But then God caused the Roman Empire to implode and collapse. Yet his church remained. And it has been so throughout all the rising and falling of great and perhaps not so great nations throughout history. God has preserved his church. He is causing it to grow. And even now, I think there are signs that God is putting his enemies to panic and confusion. Think about the the, the radical gender ideology that's been pumped out by our media, by our government, in our schools. But it seems to me that this ideology, ideology, idolatry too, But this ideology is eating itself, as it were. You hear of somebody like J.K. Rowling, the the author of those Harry Potter books, herself a radical feminist and uh, supporter of so-called homosexual rights. She's now being cancelled by the rest of the alphabet soup brigade. These, These ideas cannot stand. They are destroying themselves. They are being put to panic and confusion. So then remember, brothers and sisters, God is our great fortress. He is our refuge, our strength. Through whatever this world, this life might throw at us. But look now at verse 9. See God our Redeemer. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. And the verb at the beginning of of verse 9, we have thought, is is an interesting one in the Hebrew. It refers to uh, making comparisons, looking for similarities, thinking and considering with discrimination. But the point is that no matter where you look, whether it's a, a tale of heroic sacrifice or in the ordinary love that a mother has for her child. Wherever you look, you won't find a love that even holds a candle to the loyal love of God. It is steadfast love, loving kindness, tender mercy, such a beautiful word. Doesn't it convey so wonderfully the way that God relates to us? In, in Hebrew, the word is hetzer. And it's one of those words that I wish we had in English. It, it conveys so much for such a small word. It's speaking of faithful, committed, covenant love. A loyal love. A love that doesn't waver or falter. A love that is guaranteed. By the promise of God. A love that keeps on going. A love that never gives up. The kind of love that John is speaking of in his gospel when he says, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The kind of love that drove Christ to the cross, even when his closest friends denied even knowing him. The kind of love that moved God himself to send his only son into this world, to live the life that we should have lived but never could. The love that sacrificed his precious son in our place, that poured out the wrath that we deserve on our sinless Savior. The love that substitutes Christ's perfect life for our failures, for our sin. This is the steadfast love that calls and preserves his own people that they might be the joy of all the earth. So that in the midst of the gathered church now, this loving kindness can be thought about, talked about, celebrated together. The love that causes this church to be glad and makes this place a place where the praise of God echoes to the ends of the earth. What an awesome love this is. What a great God we have that lavishes this love on us. Let's see where the psalmist says this love is thought about. In the midst of the temple, we're meant to think of sacrifices. We're meant to think of the altar, not as some pristine white table, but we're meant to think of blood, the stench of death, the daily sacrifices that the priests offered in the temple. And this side of the cross of Christ, we can look back to the greatest sacrifice, the only effective sacrifice, Christ's once and for all time sacrifice, the act that redeemed his people. The writer to the Hebrews puts it so well. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God is our Redeemer. He has made the only way for us to be saved. And now look right to the end of the psalm. Verse 14, see God as our guide. Look at those words that finish off the psalm. He will guide us forever. Some manuscripts read, he will guide us beyond death. And the word guide describes here the work of, of a shepherd. It's pictured beautifully in Psalm 48. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety 
so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. We need to know we're sheep this morning. Helpless, needy sheep. We have nothing in us, no strength of our own that is worth anything at all. Josh has told you this before. You and I are helpless, powerless, and dependent sheep. And we never stop being that way. We'll never graduate from being sheep, ever. Believing the gospel doesn't make us stronger, more independent, more self-sufficient. Believing the gospel makes us see our weakness, our dependence, our insufficiency. But this morning we need to know that we're sheep of his pasture. We're not sheep without a shepherd. We so need a guide, don't we? We need a shepherd. Because the way can be difficult sometimes. The way can be dangerous sometimes. But God knows these dangers. In fact, he has a good purpose for every single one. He knows the difficulty of the path. And he has provided everything. Everything that we need. Everything we need to fight the battle of faith until he gives us the victory. He's given us his word. He uses like a a shepherd's crook to, to draw us back, to set us on the right path, on solid ground. His word, like spiritual food to us, our nourishment, our sustenance on the journey. And he directs us by his spirit, through his word, so that we are never alone. Because in his word, he shows us the greatest shepherd, the good shepherd, our Savior, Jesus. Think of those words in Matthew's gospel. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And then in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is why the psalmist can have the confidence to say that God will guide us forever. Even beyond death itself. He's not our guide up to the moment of death. And then at that point, we're on our own. No, God is our guide even through death. We can see that from the words that come just before. Our God forever and ever. Because Jesus has done the hardest thing. Because he has taken the punishment that we deserve. Because he has defeated death through his resurrection. Because he is our Savior. We can face the last great enemy with confidence we can say with the apostle paul oh death where is your sting because jesus will be our guide our shepherd all the way home until the race is done 
until we're ushered in to the presence of God, until we see our Savior face to face, until we hear His voice. We'll be able to say with a new clarity, new finality, all the way my Savior leads me. In fact, we'll say all the way my Savior has led me. And we'll see then, even if it's hard to see now, everything, everything has worked for our eternal good because of our precious Savior, the Good Shepherd. God is our guide through all that we face here on earth and all the way into eternity. So as we close, how can we, how can we apply this to our lives? Well, first, we need to examine ourselves. Ask yourself, are you a citizen of Zion? Is your only hope the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Have you confessed your sin? Have you repented of it? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If that's not you, then I urge you this morning, run. Run to Christ. Admit your need of a Savior. Then know this, His blood, His blood makes even the foulest clean. His sacrifice pays your debt. His resurrection is the guarantee of eternal life for you. Trust in Jesus Christ today. And if you are trusting in Christ, continue to examine yourself. Ask yourself, are you living like the joy of the whole earth? Does your daily walk match up with what you say you believe here on a Sunday? Do you live one way in front of your brothers and sisters here on Sunday morning and another during the week? Christian, you belong to Christ, body and soul. You are a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, a member of Zion. You are the joy of all the earth. You've been ransomed. You've been healed, restored, forgiven. Your whole life, every single part of it is being transformed by Jesus Christ. And so pray this morning. Pray that God would show you any area of your life that needs to be under his rule and reign. And then rejoice as he shows you those areas, those parts of your life that still need to be transformed. God is working in your life. And remember the forgiveness that Christ purchased for you is so complete, is so full, that it covers even the sin that you're unaware of this morning. We're transformed by His power. With His power. Not with our own strength. It is the work of God Himself that makes us into people who are the joy of all the earth. 
Then look at verses 12 and 13. They remind us to examine carefully all that God has done for his people. Number her towers. Count your blessings, as the old song goes. Consider well her ramparts. Remember how God has defended his people in the past. Praise him for it. Go through her citadels. Spend time in God's word. Spend time in the history of God's people, rehearsing his goodness. Call to mind all the times that God has revealed himself. Make use of the means of grace. And then tell the next generation. Fathers, lead your families in worship. Read the word of God with your children. Parents, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Teachers, teach. Preachers, preach. All of us, speak of God in the workplace, wherever we are. Gossip the gospel wherever we go. Because God is great. And he is greatly to be praised. Remember, our praise is to God. We, his people, only reflect his glory. And so although the church is the joy of all the earth, it's not because it's made up of praiseworthy people. It's not because of anything good we have in us. It's not because of any merit of our own. The church will only be the joy of all the earth insofar as it reflects back to the world what Christ has done. Insofar as it reflects his greatness, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his forgiveness, his redemption. Because it's only in the church, only because of Christ Jesus, that rebellious sons of Korah like you and me are redeemed and restored to be true worshipers, to do what we were made to do, to be citizens of Zion. And so may we never forget that we are the joy of all the earth as we live our lives of worship to him. Let's praise him for his fortress-like protection. Let's adore him for his redeeming love, and let's trust him as he guides us, even through death, and forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess before you, you are our Redeemer. You are our fortress. You are our guide. And we worship you for that. Please take away anything that has been unhelpful and plant your truth deep in our heart and cause it to grow and bear fruit as we leave this place and go out and live as the joy of all the earth. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen.